This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, during the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, there were a few heroes within the Defense and State Departments who raced the clock to save over 120,000 people from the Taliban. I'll talk to two women involved in those efforts. Then, I'll talk to a clinical director at NIH who conducts life-saving research on COVID-19, as well as those other viruses like HIV and Ebola. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Once it became clear last summer that the Afghan government would fall, the highest priority became the quick and safe evacuation of Americans, eligible Afghans, and other allies. Then, once evacuated, they needed housing and services. That job fell to teams within the defense and state departments that included Hila Hanif. She's the director of the Defense Department's Afghanistan Strategy and Policy, and Holly Herrera. She's the chief of domestic resettlement at the State Department. Ladies, welcome to both of you. Hila, I want to start with you. Um, you know, you're, you're supposed to do strategy and policy for Afghanistan. You're not supposed to evacuate thousands of people. What happened last summer and, and spring in your office? Um, so, Mimi, thank you for, for having me. Um, last spring, uh, actually starting from, you know, maybe uh, February, March, at the beginning of the uh, Biden administration, my office um, led for the Office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, an extensive process by which we were helping uh, develop positions for the Department of Defense for an interagency review on uh, the administration's policy towards Afghanistan. As part of this lengthy process, we actually all also, as the Department of Defense, do planning for a lot of different scenarios and what we call contingencies. And one of the scenarios that we had prepared for was if there is ever a time where the United States government will need to evacuate uh, mainly U.S. citizens and also maybe citizens from other uh, partner nations, um, how will we be able to execute that in conjunction with the Department of State and other colleagues? And later in the summer, when the situation in Afghanistan, specifically in Kabul, devolved, when it looked like the Afghan government may fall, um, we actually started to, to think about uh, what it would mean if we had to put some of those plans in motion. And so uh, for many months, my office had worked with our colleagues at the White House, with our military colleagues, and then State Department and other colleagues to think through some of the logistics. And the logistics involve not only the, the logistics of securing an airport and physically evacuating people, but also the process by which you would, you know, think through different um, immigration issues. How would you uh, develop criteria on who gets evacuated, how they get evacuated, and then what happens when they leave the United, when they leave Kabul and then have to go through transit points and onto the U.S. or other locations? So, Hilla, you know, your team started to work around the clock. Work us through the process of evacuating an Afghan family. Sure. Well, at the time, you know, uh, things were happening so fast in real time. Um, there was a process by which we had worked for months with our State Department colleagues. Of first, how do you nominate different Afghans, specifically those that had worked to support uh, U.S. forces throughout the 20 years that were in Afghanistan? And uh, the 
that process had been developed before where we had to actually spend months ahead of time verifying their employment, verifying their credentials, uh, verifying that they actually had um, some sort of security check in advance, and then putting them into a system, the, the State Department's database for nominating certain of these families for refugee status uh, in the United States. Um, when the evacuations actually happened, we accelerated in real time. We actually worked to get volunteers from around the department to then collect the documentation from different um, Department of Defense, either service members, former service members, or civilians who were nominating Afghans that they had worked with for uh, entry into this State Department database. Um, that was then coupled with what was happening on the ground, whereby the State Department was working to first prioritize certain groups to get to the airport and get onto planes for evacuation. Um, and then there's another group of Afghans who actually were just coming up to the gates and then demonstrating that they had some sort of status to be able to be eligible for evacuation. And Holly, turning to you now, you work at the State Department's Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration. Tell me about that office. How big is it? And what are you typically doing when there isn't this huge influx of refugees coming into the country? Well, in the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration, I specifically work in the Office of Refugee Admissions. And our bureau has about a dozen people. And we have been operating a refugee resettlement program for decades, since the Refugee Act of 1980. It so happens that we have never done an emergency resettlement operation like this. This is unprecedented for us. But we do resettle refugees every year on an ongoing basis throughout the country. You know, about a third of the country's resettlement offices had been closed um, during the uh, previous administration because of lack of funding. What impact did that have on your work? Particularly with this operation, Operation Allies Welcome, with the Afghans arriving to the United States, it made it much more challenging. The number of local resettlement programs around the country had diminished by a third. And then we also had less staff, less resources, less partnerships out in the community. So then when it became necessary to resettle in communities around the country, over 70,000 Afghans within five months, the capacity just wasn't there. It had to be developed overnight. And Hila, you uh, work to secure military bases as temporary housing for refugees. Tell us about that process. Sure. Well, um, we have, uh, you know, offices within um, the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy who actually worked with, uh, you know, we, we have uh, U.S. Northern Command who uh, went around and looked at which bases had capacity or could build capacity, uh, including by developing temporary housing, um, ensuring that they have appropriate security, ensuring that we're able to get uh, enough resources to, to house uh, refugees temporarily for a period of what would have been uh, several weeks to months. And so that process actually had started you know, well before the evacuations. But as I mentioned before, when the evacuations were occurring, um, these different bases that had been identified uh, worked very quickly to then build up that capacity for housing. All right, we'll take a quick pause right here and then we'll come back and I'll continue the conversation with Hila Hanif and Holly Herrera on their work evacuating and resettling Afghan refugees. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're talking about the evacuation and resettlement of Afghan refugees last summer 
with Hila Hanif. She is the director of the Defense Department's Afghanistan Strategy and Policy, and Holly Herrera is the chief of domestic resettlement at the State Department. Holly, uh, going back to you, um, once refugees started arriving, you had to figure out funding, you had to set up partnerships, get temporary housing, get permanent housing. Where did you start? It really was like a big puzzle. We had to figure out how we could put in place all of the resources, the structure, the policy, and the funding in order to make this successful. So at the federal level, it was really an interagency effort. We worked together with our partners at Homeland Security, Department of Defense, Health and Human Services very, very closely, and we set up something called a resettlement branch that we operate to this day, where we actually sit together um, in person, even throughout uh, much of the pandemic, in order to ensure that we could collaborate and put into place the pieces necessary. Then we fund our partners at the national and local level. They are the ones who do the direct services, the direct resettlement of refugees, finding housing, finding jobs, getting them enrolled in English, et cetera. And then lastly, it was the community. There was such an outpouring of goodwill and support from the community who really stepped up to help the Afghans. I think that they really felt just a, a commitment to helping this population. And it showed in the donations, in the volunteers that that were all contributed to help Afghans be can successful. You, can you tell us a particular story that, that you could share that really you, you felt illuminated the work that you did? Yes, I, well, I will say at the federal level, um, we were working so closely and I really believe that even though it was perhaps a little drier than the services that are done at the local level in terms of putting together resources, policy, briefings, um, I was told by um, one of our partners at the local level that seeing us work together as federal agencies made her proud to be an American. And that really just stuck with me. Hila, back over to you. You know, you were essentially racing the clock, right? And, and working um, around the clock, trying to save lives. How did you deal with the emotional strain of, of the, that, that period of time? Well, it, it was uh, very difficult. Um, my my office was actually, we were at the time personally taking phone calls from different contacts who were calling us and asking us for help in getting their relatives through the gates or getting them through the system. I actually myself had some family members who were also trying to get out at the same time. And so um, it wasn't easy. You know, there, there are times where there's tears in the office, but uh, you know, there, there's also an adrenaline when you're when you're working. You know, I think it was a period of 17 days, round the clock. All of your colleagues are working to do the same. Um, there is just a, a huge network, both within the government, but also private citizens or service members, former service members, who are all working in their in their own way to help. Um, uh, you know, save as many Afghans as they could. And so I think at, at the time, it's emotional, but you're just focused on the work and then, and then can, you know, spend some time being emotional later. And Holly, I would imagine that would be quite uh, emotional, <laughs> was an emotional time for you all as well. Are you able to follow up with refugees and see how they're doing after they've been resettled? Yes, to an extent, we actually do uh, do some after action assessments. We interview refugees, Afghan refugees in their homes virtually to understand how they're doing. Focus groups have been held. I hear stories all the time from our partners. One of them just recently told me about an Afghan woman 
who had never read a word in her life. And now she's taking English classes, and she was in the grocery store. And she was able to read some of the words in the grocery store and asked her husband if that was, if she was reading it correctly. And he told her she was. And she said that she just felt so much more confident and optimistic about her future, really for the first time. You know, Gila, um, a lot of the news that's coming, um, that came out of the Afghanistan evacuation um, were, were negative um, for a lot of reasons. What do you want the American public to know about that process of evacuation and what your team and others within the Defense Department and the government did? Sure. I mean, uh, it's it's understandable that there was negative news because it wasn't exactly a happy or easy situation. But I would say to to see uh, the the U.S. government, multiple departments and agencies, and then other current and, and former government uh, members, military members, and then citizens kind of banding together, whether or not they realize they're all working for the, the same purpose, to see them work so intensely because of, frankly, just just the, the compassion and then the desire to actually help the Afghans who had worked with us um, was actually quite significant. You know, even if we didn't get out everyone who we wanted, there's still a process by which some other Afghans are being evacuated. There, there was a real human passion, human emotion behind all these efforts. And um, I think that a lot of our Afghan colleagues, especially those who are lucky enough to be able to be evacuated, really felt that. And finally, Holly, what do you want the American public to know about the resettlement effort? I want them to know that we have this wonderful opportunity. When I told that story earlier about the woman who just learned to read, I think about all the women and girls that now have this opportunity to live in freedom and to be able to have professions and um, freedom uh, to move about society and contribute to society. So many have already found jobs and are in school and contributing. And it's just a wonderful story. All right, well, Gila and uh, Holly, I wanna thank you both for the work that you did during that time and that you continue to work um, on behalf of the American taxpayer. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks, Mimi. Coming next uh, on Government Matters, the NIH doctor at the forefront of research and treatment of HIV. Stay with us. My guest started his career at NIH in 1979. It wasn't too long after that that the AIDS epidemic emerged. His work was pivotal in turning an HIV diagnosis from a death sentence into a manageable chronic disease. Dr. Clifford Lane is the clinical director for NIH's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Lane, welcome to the program. Thank you, it's nice to be here. I wanna start with that other virus, COVID-19. You established a public-private partnership led by NIH that sets clinical research priorities for COVID. How does that work? So that's something that really um, was started by the NIH director at the time, Dr. Francis Collins. It uh, utilizes the um, foundation for the NIH, which is a private entity, to bring together in one forum a variety of different government agencies, HHS, Health and Human Services, the VA, Department of Defense, uh, together with an array of private industry partners, as well as other academic partners, to help um, 
harmonize to a degree and prioritize to a degree the types of research that's done uh, in the setting of COVID-19. Um, it has um, split into different entities, uh, elements of that, a preclinical looking at tracking the variants, a clinical developing protocols and deciding which drugs to treat, and then looking at some of the issues related to vaccine development. It, it really was something that, that grew out of the need to have uh, coordination and prioritization at a national level for us uh, during the research response to COVID-19. And, and you alluded to this because you helped set up treatment guidelines for COVID. I wonder how confident you are that we've got the best treatment and management protocols for this virus. You know, uh, treatment guidelines um, are typically uh, living documents as opposed to anything that's static. We are continually learning more about this disease. And as we learn more, we think it's very important to get that information out to the public. It was interesting because some of the response that we've made to COVID-19, in fact, was informed by what had been going on in China. The World Health Organization sent a delegation to China in late February of 2020. I was fortunate enough to be part of that delegation, see how things were evolving in China. And by that time, which was approximately two months into their outbreak, the first outbreak, they had gone through six sets of treatment guidelines. And it was clear that there was going to need to be that type of guidance for the clinicians in the US. So we were very happy to get the mandate basically from the White House task force to put something together and to keep it updated over time. I mean, we've had over 50 updates and somewhere in the range of 20 million page views. Take us back to the 1980s, Dr. Lane, when HIV first arrived on the scene. What was the initial reaction at, at NIH to AIDS? Yeah, it was it was it was a pretty amazing time. We, you know, we had a disease. It was a devastating disease. It was striking young men, really in the prime of their lives, and they were dying. And we were admitting patients um, to our hospital, the clinical center um, of the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, at first, we didn't know what the causative agent was. It was suspected to be an infectious agent. It was obviously later determined to be the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, but it was just an incredibly uh, intense, sad, while at the same time motivating a period of time where you, you, you so wanted to help the patients, but we had so little that we could do. So again, in those first days, it really was trying to diagnose the infections, treat the infections, but knowing even if you were successful in treating infection A, that you were soon gonna be facing infection B or Kaposi's sarcoma or a lymphoma. And it just, each patient was a progressive downhill slide. We have a COVID vaccine, we have a flu vaccine. Where's the HIV vaccine? HIV vaccine is still an aspirational goal. I mean, HIV is a pretty difficult virus. It has the ability to change very rapidly, even within a single uh, infected individual. So thus far, there have been some successes in eliciting immune responses with vaccines. There's one study that showed some very modest protection that has yet to be replicated. So it remains a, a real challenge for the scientific field. And Ebola is another very dangerous disease. Uh, a few years ago, the Democratic Republic of Congo requested your help during that outbreak. What did you do there? in the middle of a war, I might add. 
<laughs> it was it was interesting based on some experiences we had during the West Africa outbreak a few years earlier we had done a randomized controlled trial of a drug called Zmap and while we couldn't show whether or not Zmap was of benefit it appeared not to be of harm so we used that experience to use Zmap as a control arm for a randomized controlled trial of the different therapeutics for Ebola virus disease that looked promising at the time. So we had ZMAP as the control, we had remdesivir as one of the uh, experimental arms, monoclonal antibody 114 as a third arm, and then the Regeneron cocktail, cocktail as a fourth arm. And we compared those four treatment regimens and found that the Regeneron cocktail and the monoclonal antibody 114 that had been developed actually by the NIAID Vaccine Research Center, they were clearly superior to the control arm in terms of survival. And those two drugs now have been licensed for treatment of Ebola. Of note, and, as you say... Uh, this, and, this, and, and Dr. Lane, I just want to wrap real quick by saying, you know, you could have worked anywhere as a doctor. What do you find rewarding about uh, government service? The thing that's rewarding about government service is it, it the mission is the focus. There is no other focus to it. It's not uh, how many uh, relative value units you generate in a day. It's really what you accomplish and how does that improve public health and the health of the individual patient by extension. All right, Dr. Lane, thanks so much for being on the pro program and for your service. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers 
we sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.